Hi, I'm Dr. Rob Bell, and over the coming months, I'm going to be taking you behind the scenes of the Queensland Museum Network and their brand new podcast, Museum Reveal. From the mysteries of the deep sea to the world's rarest tank, Mephisto, there's wedding dresses, prehistoric reptiles, whales, mollusks, and much more. Each week, we will reveal something else from the network's collections. What will we reveal next? Stories and mysteries, so surreal, so surreal. Science and history, real, real, real. Joining us today is Dr. Merrick Eakins who works with carnivorous sponges and deep sea creatures, it says here in front of me. So I'm, I'm going to need to know a lot more about that, particularly with National Science Week being themed deep blue this year. So a lot of things about the oceans, um, something I find fascinating. Why don't you, first of all, tell me a little bit about the different creatures that you curate here at the museum? All right. Oh, look, my official title, Sessile Marine Invertebrates. Isn't that a mouthful? Yes. <laughs> I didn't know what it was before <laughs> I started here either. So sessile means they're attached to the substrate for most of their life. Marine comes from the ocean, invertebrates, they lack a backbone. So basically the groups I normally work on are things like hard and soft corals, sponges, bryozoans, jellyfish. Jellyfish are cool because they actually, they do have a sessile stage. The hydroid is the same as it too. Because uh, I think of them floating or blob, wobbling right, around yeah. sort of by themselves. But yeah. so in their yeah. early life, they're, they're stuck on something. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And most things like sponges, and if you like to think of us, we have a... A motile stage as well that swims around very briefly. So, <laughs> so yeah, so they're the groups I work on. At the moment, I'm going to talk about sponges today. And sponges occupy every single habitat where there's water, from fresh water at the top of mountains down to the abyssal plains on the bottom of the ocean. Oh, that's yeah. interesting because I, I kind of, well, I don't know about anyone else, but I certainly think of sponges and I've, I've seen them washed up on the, the beach before and I certainly know that they're in the oceans, but I had no idea that there were freshwater sponges. Yeah. They actually, they're really cool. They actually get carried around on the legs of birds. So you have these migratory birds that go from Russia down to Australia. They're carrying these little spores and they land in a freshwater lake around here and the spores come off and then it germinates and off it goes. Wow. So they can, and they'll live in those two different habitats quite happily and then maybe, right. you know, migrate back the other way again. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, you might, you might say, okay, these guys have convinced the birds to be their carriers for them. <laughs> a, yeah, wow, what a strange link in the life cycle of a, of a sponge. Yeah. So tell me, how does a sponge, can you take us through how a sponge survives? Because anyone who's who's picked one up on the beach, it's hard to imagine that it used to be a living organism in a way. Mm -hmm. So how do they how do they function? How do they you know, choose where they live, for want of a better way to put it, if they're basically stuck to something? And how do they eat? Well, <clears throat> they get... They will land on the substrate and they'll either do asexual reproduction or sexual reproduction, which will either mean they'll grow immediately close to one of their parent sponges or they'll go across the ocean until they land on a suitable habitat. And they can also survive fragmentation. If you rip one off, it'll just float off in the ocean and it'll eventually colonise somewhere else as well. So they've got heaps of different ways of dispersing. They've been around for half a billion years. So, wow, ancient, and they'll ancient. be around long after we're gone. Um, but generally, sponges are filter feeders. So they sit in the bottom and they take in water and filter it out and then spit the water out, the wastewater out. 
And so that's how they normally do. But we're going to talk about some special ones today, carnivorous ones. Ooh. Now, so, and, and I guess getting back to that, so is a sponge then classified as uh, an animal or a plant? So it's yeah. obviously not a fungus, but... <laughs> yeah, it's an animal. And it's a, it's, it's, they're a classic animal. And they, there's this old experiment where you used to get a, a sponge and you put it through a blender and break it up into individual like cells. And then you put it through a cheesecloth and so it strains it all out. And then if provided you've left it all in the right salt conditions, and that'll reform into a sponge and the cells will go and form into these organelles. Wow. So it's not just, you look at a sponge and you might think, oh, they're all the same cells, but they're not. They're, they're, they're formed into inhalant vascular tissues and other tissues that have little flagella that beat the water and push it out. So they their own specific functions, much like, yeah. you know, we have arms and legs and, and whatnot. Yeah. Sort of, yeah. Hearts, but... But, but one thing I love about sponges, they're all totipotent, which is like stem cells. So each oh, cell yeah. can go off and become a different type of thing. And, and, and when we're going to talk about carnivorous sponges, they do this funny thing because they have... All sponges are made of silicon. Well, most, most sponges are made of silicon. And this is unusually... I've got here a metre-long spicule, which is only one species in the bottom of the ocean that wow. has, has a silicon spicule like this. Normally, sponge spicules are fractions of a millimetre you know, down to three micrometers in size. So that's that. what you're holding there, that's come off a sponge? That's come off a sponge, and that's one single cell it's, wow. it's done. So it, it's, just to describe it, it's, it looks like a a long, thin rod of, uh, well, flexible sort of... Yeah, fiber optics. It looks like a fiber optic, or a thin, clear, sort of plasticky, yeah. glassy... Um, and it's actually hollow and flexible. And it is hollow, wow. And it's actually, cl it's actually uh, purer than um, fiber optics. Wow. So, and the sponge has just done this underwater. It's an amazing looking thing. But these carnivorous ones, they have they have ones of these that are, are modified. Well, they're all, all different shapes. A lot of sponges have really sharp ones, and that's partly to stop things from eating them. Yep, protection. And these carnivorous sponges have used this to actually trap prey, and that's how they do it. A little isopod will be walking along, and, it's, and they have lots of hair-like structures on them, and all these individual hairs will get caught on these little things, and so it gets stuck eventually. And then because the cells are totally potent, the sponge basically goes, okay, this cell here is now going to go out and engulf it and become a stomach thing. So it turns that, it. that section of that's itself right. into the stomach for yeah, the purposes right. of eating what's come along. Yeah, and no one knows how this happens, of course. This is a whole, yeah. whole, whole realm of science yet to be discovered. Yeah. Right. That is quite amazing. And so with carnivorous sponges, I suppose what they feed upon probably depends on the size of the sponge to a degree, but what sort of size creatures are we talking about here? You know, tiny up to medium size or... Oh, yeah, we're talking about tiny. Uh, we're talking about up to several millimetres in size. Okay, yep, yeah, yep. yeah. So anything that just happens to be crawling or floating on by and gets stuck within yeah, that's right. the yeah. sponge, it'll... Yeah. Uh... yeah, and these guys occur below a 1,000 metres and all the way down to the abyssal floor. And the reason they're down there so deep is that there's so little food... They talk about taking a thousand years for a centimetre of sediment to reach mm. the bottom of the ocean floor. So a lot of these have to grow out of the sediment. And so they, they're on little structures. And I've got one here. And you can see it's got like this one I'll describe. It's got little roots. And then it's got one big long filament that's like 10, oh, 20 yep. centimetres long. And up the top, it's got what look like little hairy processes. Mm -hmm. And that's where it's going to do all the catching because they'll be above this layer of snow. And then when something... So that comes sits along. up there, yeah. waving around, waiting for some food to yeah. drift by. Well, not so much waving, but right. they'll be. But yeah, It'd but be fairly thing, still. That's true. And the thing is that there's so little food coming along, and that's why they've decided to swap from a filter feeding to a carnivory lifestyle. 
They've decided there's more food to be caught that way. So they've yeah evolved that technique, yeah. I suppose, to be able to uh, survive down yeah. down in the abyss. Now, look, I find the the depths of the ocean that far down kind of probably equal parts um, fascinating and well, creepy is probably the wrong word, but just be strange, I suppose, a strange world because light ceases at what sort of about fifty meters is it or something like that? No, so a couple hundred meters. A couple yeah. hundred meters, okay, yeah, yeah, bit, but, bit lower. But but I mean, these, you're, you're not talking about a hundred or so meters with these things. You're talking kilometers down. Yeah, right? that's right, exactly. Yeah. So there's there's no light, no light at no all, light no light at all, no. um, and immense pressures. Yeah, that's right, you're right. So it just seems strange to me that things could have evolved to live down there and not just by themselves, but obviously then there's obviously something for them to feed off and yeah. to be able to reproduce. Yeah. Um, do they, they don't change shape greatly when they come up or, or do they, do they lose their, their structure when they come up? Uh, I'm just wondering if they're under pressure down sort of in the abyss, do they change greatly when you bring them to sort of surface pressures? Uh, yes and no. These ones I've got here does not, but they used to collect ones and before, and it was done recently as well, like there was a Challenger expedition in the 1800s, and they put down piano wire to the bottom of the ocean, and this, this is probably one of the first expeditions to actually work out what's on the bottom of the ocean. And so they'd have to reel up, and so you've got 12 kilometres of cable out, and then you've got to pull it back up. And they described these sponges, these carnivorous sponges, which were described later, and they had all these flaccid little bits to it, and they didn't know what they were. And it wasn't until someone went down with an ROV about 20 years ago, and they went... Oh, there it is underwater. And these things are actually spheres of air or gas bubbles so that it holds itself up. So it's floating above the surface wow. to keep it out of this out of the snow-like effect. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, so I guess but, but again, that's an example of one they don't have. But but ones that are made of silicon, they come up. And because the water down there is like one one or two degrees, by the time you bring it up the surface, everything's parboiled as well. Oh yeah, of course. Everything changes when you bring it up. You know, it's far. bringing it up to eighteen degrees and it's of course it's it's boiled up as well as pressure, but yeah. But yeah, but there's lots of, because they're, they've got this hard silicon, most of these don't change too much shape. But again, we don't know because we haven't had a camera down there for all the other years. Join us in just a moment as we come back and talk to Dr. Merrick about some more of the creatures found down in the deep ocean and how they're found. Ignite your imagination at Spark Lab. With 40 mind-blowing exhibits to explore across three interactive zones, there's loads of fun for the whole family. Get up close with live science experiments or test out your designs and theories at our latest Makerspace Challenge. Book your tickets now at qm.qld.gov.au. Welcome back to the Museum Reveal podcast. We are chatting with Dr. Merrick Eakins and we are chatting all about sessile invertebrates. Is that right? Did I get it right? Yeah, marine invertebrates. Marine invertebrates. Oh, yes, yes, right. Um, and we've, we've obviously chatted a little bit about sponges and... I want to go into how you find these sponges because you mentioned that they're kilometres, or some of them are kilometres down in, in the abyss where it's dark and freezing. How do you go about getting them up to the surface? How do you find these things? You've been out on expeditions to, to get these things? Yeah, that's right. And one of the expeditions we did a couple of years ago on the on the Cyrus investigator vessel, and I named one of the carnivorous sponges after the investigator. Oh, very good. So Cyrus, very yeah. happy about that. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so we got... You, we were there looking at the end of the continental shelf. It comes out and drops down, and the abyss off Australia is four kilometres deep. And so we went pick a few spots at 2,000 metres, like halfway down the slope and at the bottom of the slope. And to get there, we didn't have a camera or ROV that could go deep enough. So it was basically dropping, dropping a sort of different type of sleds off and lowering them down 
and there's a whole lot of telemetry going on to try and track where the boat is and where it is in the water. When you're dragging something that's well, four some... kilometres down, basically. Yeah, so you've got, a, you've got like 12 kilometres of steel cable out. Wow. And you, because, because the equipment's quite expensive and it's quite rocky down the bottom, you're trying to, you identify, you go over with a multi-beam sonar and find areas like a landing run, runway, if you like, and you go, okay, we've got to try and hit that because otherwise if you hit it, on it and then you can run along for a couple of kilometers because these things down there are quite far apart and they're so rare you know it's not like a rainforest where you go and think it's more it's yeah. more like going through a desert oh, okay. you know and you occasionally hit something but there's so, a desert so you do, four kilometers down that you can't actually that see you can't see <laughs> so wow so and the problem is if it the, because the boat's moving along at a current to pull it and so if it if it comes up against a rock there's a high chance you're going to suddenly put 20 tons of yeah. strain on the cables and break oh. cables so that's why you got to try and land it on these spots so there's a bit of it's a massive logistics exercise quite nothing a, lot, else. a lot of logistics organizing this and we ha also had these other type of sleds there was one for collecting isopods and it it was like a, a santa sleigh if you like and so it would have these bomb bay doors which were closed and then when it touched down the bottom the lever would activate and the bomb bay doors would oh. open and it was about a foot off the ground so that what it was doing, the front of the slow sleigh was stirring up the stirring up the sediment, so oh, it was getting loose things. Drift in, and uh, so they would drift in, and they, and they were caught really carefully. And it was really good because and these people, are tiny little these are sort of little yeah. isopods we're talking about, like a couple of millimeters in size, okay. or up to several centimeters. But the thing is, before people they'd been described, and people only had the body. And for the first time ever, they they realised, oh, these guys have antennas which are three or four times the length of the body, but no one had ever seen that before because normally you have like this big metal. And they just cage, if you imagine going through there, and it's every, everything's the getting, and if a rock gets in there, it's bashing around with it, and you're traveling four kilometers along the bottom, and then you've got to travel another eight kilometers oh, up through the water, and it's all it going up. like a washing machine, so and you've got mud in there, so up. it's all getting mashed up, and a lot of times it comes on deck, and it's all covered in mud, and so you have to try and sift it out and get rid of all the mud, which are out, of course, washing away your precious little samples. Yeah, so and the, it, more, the more fragile ones don't make it up in the condition that they were down That's there. exactly right, yeah. And it's great if you, you pick up an eel or something, that's quite easy. But oh. I'm chasing these carnivorous sponges, yeah. <laughs> which are a couple of centimetres long. So you can imagine if you pulled up several tonnes worth of stuff in a big net, then you have to wash it out and so, then keep hold of these things. So to put it in context, you're essentially... So if, if say, a kid was at the beach and was doing something similar to what you're doing, but obviously on a much, much smaller scale, it'd be like what tying a little plastic bucket to a rope and then dragging it through the shallow water and picking up stuff. But, of course, you're doing this four kilometres down with 12 kilometres worth of steel cable behind right. the boat. And, and, and he's got a, and he's got a, he's got his eyes covered. can't see. And you're offshore. So how far is, how long do you take to get to the continental shelf typically in Australia? So how far out do you go before it drops off? I suppose it I depends. It's between where... 30 and 100 kilometres out. Okay, yep. But, so... uh, but obviously out, out in, the, in the Coral Sea, it's a long way because the Coral Sea comes right out on a big plateau. And at the moment, sure. there's another exhibition heading out there. Tomorrow, I think, on the Falco expedition, is heading out to go and do some more. Excellent. And they've got an ROV too, which is a remote, remote operated, operated vehicle. vehicle. So yeah, they can like sit down with a, a camera and sort of see what yeah, they're looking exactly at. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's got a little arm you can go and grab stuff uh -huh. with. And we took one up to Osprey Reef about 10 years ago to try and pick up some samples too. So that must be, must be a boon, I guess, when you're used to stuff just sort of coming up and having to sift through it to be able to see what it looks like in its natural state. For that's exactly right. You can it. see, there it is, and you go, oh, quick, get one of those, get one of those. <laughs> Awesome. So that's all fun, yeah. Awesome. So, um, I've always been fascinated by a, a few deep sea footages I've seen of um, hagfish just because they're these ancient kind of things that squibble all around down there and don't have much shape. And 
and whatnot. But I think I think it's crazy that they live down there in the dark and um, are, are probably good snacks for seals and, and other things that come along. But just the the variety of creatures and and that live down there is just kind of strange. But it's not all down there. You also go and collect sponges. Um, from a little closer to home and a little closer to the surface. Tell me, how yeah. do you go and get those ones? Yeah, well, most, a lot of what we do is scuba diving because, as you probably know, the coral coral is all photosynthetic, so it, it, yep. it, it dies out after a certain depth. And um, so we go out and basically drive, dive, dive down and photograph stuff underwater and then collect a little sample and then bring it back. And... To identify sponges and octocorals and things, it requires a lot of microscope work. You look at this fine detail structure. So unfortunately, it's not like fish or birds where you can flip through a book, go, oh, that's that, that's that. You know, it's one hour in the field usually generates a week, or if not oh, wow. a month or two months of work. So you go on one scuba dive trip, and every time I go scuba dive, we pick up probably about 30 sponges or so, and pretty much one of those will be a new one to science. So, so much we don't know. I mean... The carnivorous sponges, just from that one trip, I got 17 brand new species to science. Wow. So, and typically, where, where do you go? So, up around the Great Barrier Reef? Somewhere? Up around the Great Barrier yeah. Reef, but also out in Moreton Bay. Oh, okay. Here yeah. as well. So yeah. close to home as well. Yeah. So, so much, so much is unknown. It's really, I mean, for example, in the just as sponges in the museum collection here, we've got over 5,000 morpho species, but probably about 800 of them have been described already. So I've got four and a half thousand species to describe. <laughs> <laughs> well, I better not keep Several you too much longer. Work. <laughs> You've got a lot of work ahead of you. Look, I want to take a really quick detour at the end um, from Cessile invertebrates because I gather you also uh, go out in Moreton Bay um, tagging dugong. Yeah, I help out. How do you? How does one tag a dugong? <laughs> well, it's a fun project. I help out with Janet Lanyon from the University of Queensland. Um, well, basically, we get a dugong and we find a herd, and then you try and separate one from the herd. And then we follow it and we try and get it to do a bit of a run. So it, it, uh, it um, ties it, up, it, ties it, ties yeah, it yeah. out a bit. Yep. And we usually, we, wait, we get on what we call third breath. It usually does about two minutes. Oh, okay, and it yep. comes up, takes a breath. And on the third breath, as it comes up, it then arches its back and its head goes underwater. And then four of us jump off in coordinated fashion off a boat wow. at speed. Yep. And two of us grab it around the back. And then other two of us jump in front and try and grab around the peck. And then it's like... Several minutes, heavy duty rinse cycle as the dugong rolls and bucks and tries to throw us off. And so it's like it's like a dugong rodeo. <laughs> it is. It is exactly what it is. And it's funny because sometimes if you're in front of the boat and you jump off, and you go, oh, "Where are they? Oh, oh, it's back there." <laughs> and other times you might see a dugong going past at high speed, and you go, "Oh, it's gone." Or sometimes you'll see it go past with one person attached. I was gonna, you're, you're the only one who gets on it. And then you try and grab them, and if you if you can stay on for thirty seconds, then other people can grab onto you and climb up, and then wow. You know, and so the, it, it sounds quite rough in a way it is, but on the other hand, it's really gentle because we're just using our hands and our bodies. Whereas when they do this with manatees overseas, they have to use cranes and nets and lassoes and things. And to me, that's much more, and they take it out of the water. Oh, yeah. We do this and we just sit in the water with it and then we can take measurements and a sample and a tag while the dugong's in the water. Whereas others overseas, they have they got these boats and lasso it, then they haul it out with a crane on the deck. And oh, no, no, yeah. So... It so it's, it sounds rough, and it is physically rough enough. And I've come back with bruises all it's over my body. Before. Probably rougher on you but than the dugong. It's I definitely rougher on us than the dugong. Yeah. And what's what's the purpose of? I guess what's the end result of a lot of this tag is to track their movements around Morton Bay, see where they're going, see what the populations are like. That's or? part. Of, it's usually population. It's first off to work out how big the population is, and and now with, you can take a genetic sample and work out who's related to who, so we can see where and 
whether these populations are mixing with ones like in Harvey Bay and North as well. Yep. And first, we're also doing a health survey because no one knows what um, a healthy dugong is. No one knows any about its metabolic requirements or anything. So it's, it's basically establishing baseline data so we can work out how they're going to go in the future. Yeah, I mean, they're such fascinating animals now on our doorstep here, in Morton Bay at least. Um, yeah, so we're, it's, yeah, we're, we're one of the few places in the world where we have this amazing animal. Yeah. Like in, in Japan, they have seven of them. I think there's six now, but, but you know, every now and then one gets caught by fishing and they've just got such a reduced population. And most other parts of the world, they're hunted for food and in great numbers. So Australia is the stronghold for dugongs in the world. Excellent. And we've got some right here, right next to a major city. Okay, and you can tag them and jump on them. No, no, that's only for the professionals, only the professionals. I wouldn't recommend that for anyone else. You're going to do yourself a mission. Oh, yeah, you'll completely, <laughs> if you don't do it properly, yes, <laughs> you'll get spine injuries. Yeah. Well, it's been fascinating having a chat. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Merrick Eakins, uh, for the Museum Reveal podcast. Um, and for everyone out there listening, what did you uncover in this episode? If you're interested in learning a little bit more, well, you can follow the Queensland Museum on social media at QLD Museum, that's at QLD Museum, or you can head to our website, qm.qld.gov.au, and while you're there, sign up to the e-news list to keep up to date on everything. And don't forget, there's show notes that go along with this if you want to find out a little bit more about sessile invertebrates and possibly even dugong tagging. Until next time, though, stay curious.